Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Okay, so just to get our bearings as to where we were, uh, we were studying we're studying the negative theology of God, and essentially the Rambam's. Uh, Please start your uh, your video. Your video is turned off. My video is turned off. Okay, you're gonna have to. I don't know why my video is turned off. Your camera's turned off. Okay. I'm not sure why, but uh, let me see. I may have to stop the share just to see what's going on. I'll stop the share for just a second. And uh, let's see. How do I turn back on my video? I don't even see that. Audio and video. Um, camera. On the bottom, I should say, like, start video. Okay, got it. Start video. All right. Okay, now I have to go back and share your screen again. And now I'm going to share the screen again. <laughs> okay, isn't technology grand? Okay, so uh, the Rambam had gotten through telling us in uh, last week's chapter 57 that he was going to delve a little bit deeper into this topic of not being able to properly um, uh, understand any kind of attributes that God possesses. And he pointed out, really, the theme of chapter 57 is that the human language lacks proper vocabulary to properly even describe God. So even though the Rambam said that in, um, in his Mishneh Torah, that we saw last week in Hilchot Yusodei HaTorah, that the reason why when we describe one that he is different from all other unitary things that we can imagine, because all unitary things are capable of being broken down further into smaller components. But in the Moren of Uchim, the Rambam's argument as to why we don't really understand when, that God is one, when we say that God is one, we mean something totally different from what we normally think of in our minds, is because God is completely outside the frame of anything that is numerical. In other words, it's, and, and the Rambam is going to continue along this theme that trying to use Hebrew, uh, any kind of human language to describe God is going to fall short because anything that is within the frame of our three dimensional time space universe is confined by definition and our vocabulary is confined to that time space. And to think outside of that time space, to think about that which is essential to God is therefore impossible. But he's going to go a little bit deeper into this, but I find that the language is so technical in this chapter that I, I've done something that I don't do for most chapters, which is to provide you 
a breakdown and an outline of the chapter. And with your permission, I'm just, instead of going through the entire text of the chapter, we're going to go through the main themes and then a breakdown of the chapter very briefly. And then if we have some time, I would like to show you how we can find perhaps a more simplified language of things that the Rambam is discussing in the Kuzari from Rebbe Yehuda Halevi. Not that necessarily they are saying identical things, but you will get an idea of this type of negative the theology with a greater sense of clarity by looking at a companion text. So first, let's break down the chapter. This is chapter 58. The two main themes that the Rambam discusses here are as follows. And I hope everyone can see the screen. Ezra, are we are we good? I hope I hope we are good. Um, the the two primary themes of uh, this chapter are number one that negative attributes in general are more advantageous when describing God because they don't contain the same inherent deficiencies as positive attributes. And the the, the point that the Rambam is essentially making is that when you try to say what God is, you are going to be more inaccurate than when you say what God is not. Because when you're describing what God is not, you are not assigning any essential attributes to God. You're not saying, you're not trying to define him. And because by defining him, you are by necessity confining him. So therefore we're much better off saying what he is not in order for us to get a better picture a more accurate picture of God. Number two, even the negative attributes that are assigned to God cannot be understood in their conventional sense. And that's the bulk of the chapter that we're going to focus on. And this is why the Rambam says at the very beginning of this chapter, we're going to go a little bit deeper into this subject because even though normally we would think that as long as we confine ourselves to negative attributes, negative kinds of attributions, we're okay. But we have to appreciate that even the things that we say that God is not are not completely accurate either. And he's going to explain why. So there are really seven points that I'd like to show as the breakdown of this chapter. Point number one is that while attributes are meant to particularize the thing being attributed, they usually don't describe the thing with the level of precision where all other things are excluded from that attribute. And what the Rambam means to essentially say is that he's just speaking generally, that when you find, when you try to say that something is red, or something is alive, or something is a plant, or something is a, a, a human, you are, you are, what you're attempting to do is to try and limit the definition of what you are discussing. You're trying to particularize it and say that it is this and not that. But generally speaking, when you assign an attribute to anything, you're not giving something that is, uh, that is going to absolutely define it in a unique way. Usually there are, that are included in that idea. So for example, living being, if I say, who is that person? Who is, what is, I see something in the distance, what is that thing? And a person tells me, oh, that's a living being. Well, that means it could be a human being. So it, once I know that that, that that thing that's down the road is a living being, I know that it is not a mineral, I know that it's not uh, a plant, but it doesn't indicate to me whether that's a human being or whether that's an animal. Another example is if you say something is not a mineral 
or a plant. And that's what that's the only information that you have. That's a negative attribute. And it helps us identify the thing as a living being, right? But not limited only to human beings. Sometimes there are the, the, when you identify something positively and something when you identify something negatively, you're getting the same amount of information. And the Rambam says, this is what positive and negative attributes share in common. They basically narrow down and help us define what we are trying to discuss. So if we're trying to conjure an image in my mind of what the thing is, I can either describe it positively or I can describe it negatively. Think of a, think of a, a, a game that you would play with friends and you have to uh, try to give information to your friend like playing 20 questions. You can either say what it is or you can say what it's not. And in both such scenarios, you are narrowing down for the person who is trying to figure out what is going on through your attributions, through the way that you uh, attribute or describe the thing in question. Now, but then the Rambam says, that's what positive and negative attributes share in common. The difference, however, between positive and negative attributes is that whereas positive attributes provide either intrinsic or extrinsic attributes about the thing, negative attributes do not accept by inference. This is one advantage of negative attributes vis-a-vis -vis God. When you are trying to describe something in a positive way, I can say the thing is alive, or I can say the thing is white, I can describe its color, I can describe its dimensions. And as we've learned before, there are attributes which are intrinsic or, or essential to the thing. With, and by that term, we mean that if it didn't have that characteristic, it wouldn't be that thing. So for example, if I describe a human being as being alive, that is an intrinsic characteristic because you cannot be a human being unless you're alive, okay? But there's also extrinsic or non-essential attributes such as I'm talking about a person with black hair. So if I wanted to describe a person, I could say that person has black hair, that's not intrinsic to their humanity, it's extrinsic. So there's different ways of, different types of attributes as we've discussed before. But either way, when you describe something positively, you are uh, saying that uh, you're describing something that attaches itself to that object. Negative attributes, you're just saying what the thing is not, so you're not directly assigning attributes or um, a, a description that inheres within that thing that you're describing. And the reason why that's advantageous when describing God, as the Rambam has developed and as he will continue to develop, is that we cannot assign any attributes, whether intrinsic or extrinsic to God, because God is 100% unitary. And because of his absolute unitary nature, there can be no attributes attached to his essence. Um, the next point, point number three, it is manifest and already demonstrated that God exists. And this is not something that the Rambam has gone through a formal proof in demonstrating it, but that he is taking it as a given that the reader already has taken, has already, it has already been demonstrated to the reader that he, he believes in God's existence. And then he says it will be proven later at the beginning of section two of Morena Buchim that this God is not a composite being. And then he finally says that we cannot comprehend God's essence. 
As such, the only way to define God is in terms of himself. So that if you were to ask, what is God? The answer would be, he is God. God can only be defined in terms of himself because he has no composite nature. If God was comprised of things, you describe each one of those things that God is comprised of and get a working definition of God. But because God is sui generis, there is nothing that is like him. There is nothing that is included in his category. Therefore, the only way you can define him is in terms of himself. What is God? He is God. That's all you can know. He therefore cannot possess any positive attributes, neither intrinsic and certainly not extrinsic. And that's something that we've discussed before. Point number four, and this is really the main thrust of the chapter. Even negative attributes only provide an approximation for God's essence, but do not actually help us define him accurately. We artificially use positive attributes in a negative way as well to negate the opposite from God not to actually assign these attributes to him. And essentially what the Rambam is saying is that whether we say in Tanakh that God is this or he is not this, in both senses, we have to appreciate that many times we are not describing God accurately, even when we're using negative theology. But certainly when we use positive attributions of God, we certainly don't mean it in the, in, in, in the sense that it would seem at face value, but rather we mean to say that God is not not. And here's some examples that he means to, to, to explain. One example is when we say that God exists, since his existence is unlike any other thing's existence, what we really mean to say is that he doesn't not exist. Okay, and the reason why, the, what, what brings the Rambam to say this point is because if I was to say that God exists and try to appreciate existence in the same way that I appreciate my own existence, I then in, in some way am suggesting that there is a similarity, a similitude between my existence and God's existence. And that the Rambam says simply is not so. God's existence is a necessary existence. My existence is not a necessary, it's a contingent existence. I don't need to exist. God is the only necessarily existent being. And so therefore, even the word exists is inaccurate in describing God. And so therefore, instead of understanding when the Torah says that God exists, instead of understanding it as he exists like anything else exists, but rather what we have to understand it as is that he doesn't not exist. It's a double negative. Uh, another example, he says, is that when we say that God is alive, we mean that he is not dead. And again, we're not described because alive is something that when we conjure the idea of living in our mind, we associate living with so many other characteristics that are impossible to ascribe to God. And the type of life that we possess and the type of life that God possesses are two completely different things. So again, we use borrowed terminology to describe that God, when we say that God is alive, but really what we're trying to suggest is that he is not dead. He is not deceased. He is not not alive. Okay? Another example. When we say that God is non-corporeal, we mean that he is unlike things with a body. And here the Rambam is not talking about physical things that exist in our plane, but rather in the heavenly plane, which according to Aristotelian philosophy is of a more ethereal quality of body. 
But nonetheless, all we're trying to explain is that even but when comparing God to the celestial realm, God is completely unlike anything that is in the celestial realm, let alone unlike anything that is in the uh, earthly realm. Another example, when we say that God is eternal, we mean that he has no cause that brought him to be. And this is a carryover from last week's chapter, from chapter 57, where the Rambam pointed out to say that God is eternal is a misnomer because it implies, because eternality implies that God is in some way contained within time, but that he has no beginning and no end. Well, that's not an accurate description of God. God is completely uh, non, not within the same framework of the thing that we call time. God exists outside of time. So to say, use the word eternal means that God is within time, but that just that doesn't have a beginning or an end. What we mean, therefore, when we say that he's eternal is that there is nothing that brought him God into existence. God is completely outside of time. Again, a very, very borrowed term. When we wish to express that all things emanate in an ordered fashion from God, we say that he is powerful, knowing, and willing. And again, these are positive attributes, but what really you have to read them as is not, not, double negative. Me, not without power. Therefore, he, can, he has the ability to bring things into being. When we say that he is knowing is that he doesn't not know, or he is not ignorant. He is constantly alive and in control. When we say that God is a being of will, that he has volition, he has ratzon, as it is in Hebrew, it means that he is not inattentive. Everything, that is, everything emanates with purpose and order. And finally, even when we say that God is one, as we had started to say in last week's chapter, in chapter 57, we mean to say that he is not multitudinous. He is not not one. But to, even to say that God is one suggests that God is confined to some numerical system, and that in itself is a confinement of God, which is inaccurate. Point number five, all divine attributes that we will find in Tanakh, therefore describe God either through his action, which if you'll recall over the last several weeks, we have said that an acceptable way of attributing or describing God is by saying what actions emanate from God, because there you're completely distancing yourself from any kind of description of God himself, but rather saying what emanates from God, his actions. So actual attributes are totally fine. And the other type of attribute, which has been the focus of this chapter, is talking about God's essence using negative attributes. But, and this is just a recapitulation of everything we've just said, even those negative attributes are inaccurate because if you were to say that God is not multitudinous, you're implying that God is within the realm of a numerical system. And therefore, the Rambam's analogy is saying, by saying that a wall cannot hear, you're implying that a wall is a, uh, is a being that is some way associated with hearing, but just that it cannot hear. And that's not true. A wall has no association with anything having to do with auditory faculties. And therefore, it's a nonsensical statement to say that a wall cannot hear. It's not only that it's obvious, but that it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an oxymoron. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a nonsensical statement that really means nothing because the reason why a wall cannot hear is not because a wall is deaf, 
but rather because there is no association whatsoever between hearing and an inanimate wall. And that's the same way that the Rambam says that God is so outside the framework of anything that we can conjure with our own human vocabulary that even negative attributes are inaccurate. If we use negative attributes to describe the essence of the heavens, since they are out of our frame of reference, we must certainly do so for God. And the Rambam's point being is that there, there are things even lesser than God that we don't fully understand. And therefore, when we describe heaven, for example, we say we, we don't really understand the, um, the matter that makes up the heavens because it's a different kind of matter that makes up the earth. And therefore, we have to describe it in negative terminology because we don't really understand it. So if that's true in the way that we describe things that are lesser than God, surely then when describing God, we have to acknowledge that even negative attributions fall short of the true ascription to God. And therefore, his concluding statement is God is like the captain of a ship and that the captain has no association with the ship other than that he guides and controls it. And even this is not an apt analogy. And as the Rambam explains elsewhere, and we'll have to wait for a later chapter for, to discuss this more fully, when the Rambam says that this is not an apt analogy, it's because a captain at least has some level of association with his ship. He is spatially uh, connected to his ship. And also to say that God is the captain of, of all that exists, a captain did not create the ship. The captain is only there to guide the ship. But when we talk about God and his association with all of existence, God is not only responsible for guiding existence, but he is the ship maker as well. And he brought even the materials that comprise the ship into existence from, from nothing. So therefore, it's not an apt analogy, but it's trying to at least create that image in our mind that just like by describing the ship, you are in no way describing its captain, so too any kind of attributes that we try to come up with will only be able to describe the ship, but will in no way describe the captain. And then the Rambam ends with almost like a poetic uh, uh, paragraph to essentially say that fortunate is the person who comes to the realization that he will completely fall short in any way trying to describe God. Fortunate is the one who has reached the level of contemplation to realize that, that number one, thoughts about his essence, number two, making sense of how his will results in his actions, and number three, finding correct language to describe God, all hit a brick wall, all fail miserably. And uh, for, essentially, fortunate is the person that realizes that his intellect is limited by three-dimensional time-space. And as a result, he sort of acknowledges this and humbly resigns himself to only trying to be able to understand God in approximate terms, but not in, in God's truest essence. Now, why the Rambam feels that this is such an important point to say to, to the point where he actually praises a person somewhat indicates to us that he is polemicizing against an entire population of his contemporaries outside of Judaism, most likely, probably the mutakalimun, these Islamic philosophical thinkers who do believe 
that there's a way to grasp God's essence in some way and attach themselves intellectually to God in, on a perfect plane. The Rambam therefore wishes to make sure that we don't fall into that trap, we don't make that mistake, that as lofty as our thoughts are, we have to resign ourselves to the fact that the more I know, the more that I realize that I know nothing, as, uh, as, as has been stated before. So, so this is an outline of all of chapter 58. And I know that it's uh, somewhat technical and it's confusing and there's not a lot of what we would say traditional Torah content to this particular chapter. I want to assure you that the ensuing chapters are not going to be as technical as the one that we just did. And I also wanted to help try to simplify the terminology that the Rambam uses by providing you with, an, with a companion text. Rabbi Yehuda Halevi lives a half generation before the Rambam. So these ideas of negative theology are, do not originate with the Rambam. As we pointed out when we talked about um, uh, Avicenna, the philosopher Ali ibn Sina, uh, there are many things that the Rambam draws from his entire cultural philosophical milieu. And they go back to the times of Rabbi Sajigon, who in turn draws many ideas from uh, other the philosophers of his time, as do Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, as and the Rambam, and so many other of the thinkers in the Andalusian world of Jewish philosophy, the Spanish world of Jewish philosophy, which is very, very richly influenced by Aristotelianism that has been carried over by the Muslim world of this during the 11th and 12th centuries. Okay, so the, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi says, as follows. Here he's also trying to point out what certain words mean in the Torah in their description of God. And if you notice in our outline, the Rambam had said that there are only two types of attributes which are acceptable to say about God. One is his actional attributes, what God does, how he, how he interacts with the world. And number two, the negative attributes, which are somewhat inaccurate as he spent a lot of time trying to explain. Rabbi Yehuda Halevi has a different, slightly different way of categorizing it. He says all of God's attributes, except for the explicit name of Yud Kei are divided into three categories. He says three categories, action, relation, and negation. And I'm not sure what the Rambam would do with the second category of relation, but we'll just take a look at what Rabbi Yehuda Halevi says for just a moment. Names which describe action are drawn from those actions which emanate from God via natural means, such as God who impoverishes and makes rich, humbles and even exalts, who is merciful and gracious, jealous and vengeful, mighty, generous, and so on. And as the Rambam had explained in the previous chapters, this does not mean that God in any way essentially changes, but we perceive God as being merciful, as being jealous and vengeful, because the, there are actions that emanate from God that were they to come from a human being, we, this is the way we would describe the human being. Names which describe relation to God include blessed, praised, holy, lofty, and exalted. They are all used to describe God's lofty stature in human terms. I don't even know whether the Rambam would call these attributes. He might call these just ways of describing our relation to God. And he did talk a little bit about relational attributes a couple of chapters ago, 
he wasn't happy with using the relational attributes, and he therefore said that they're all borrowed. Even though many different names are used, this does not imply any multiplicity in God, nor does it alter his absolute unity. The point that I want to get to are the terms which describe God's negation. Names which describe negation, such as living, one, or first and last, very reminiscent of what the Rambam has told us, are only used to distance the opposite of these attributes from God, not to describe these terms as we understand them to God. This is because we understand living only in terms of sensory moving creatures, and God is completely above that. We therefore say that God is alive so as to remove any description of death from him. This is because one's initial reaction when hearing that something is not alive is that it is dead, even though upon deeper inspection, one will find this to be incorrect. For example, just because time is not alive does not by inference mean that it is dead. Time simply has no connection to life or death. Or for example, just because one might say that a rock is not wise does not by inference mean that the rock is stupid. Very similar analogy to what the Rambam had said when we say that when we say that a rock is, uh, or that a wall cannot hear, does not mean that the wall is deaf. And just as a rock is too lowly to be attributed with wisdom or stupidity, so is the blessed divinity too exalted to be attributed with life or death. Similarly, one cannot attribute light or darkness to the divinity. However, if someone would ask us, is the divinity light or dark? We would answer figuratively by saying that it is light, out of the fear that one's initial thought when hearing that God is not light is that he is dark. To answer the question correctly, though, we should say that only physical objects can be attributed with light or darkness, and since the divinity is non-physical, we use the term light only metaphorically or to distance any negative attribute from God. Okay, the same, very, very similar to what the Raman has been discussing. If you'd like to see the remainder of the, this text uh, from the Kuzari uh, uh, at the very beginning of the second essay of the Kuzari, you're more than welcome to download this document. It is located on the, the webyeshiva.org website. It's also available on the Facebook group, Shior in Morena Buchim. But with this, I would like to conclude chapter 58. And as we embark on chapter 59, we will get more into the terminologies that are found in the Gemara and try to reconcile some of these attributional ideas about God to the way that we will find the way Chazal talk about God. And I think that'll be a much more uh, helpful chapter for us to really get into in a more meaningful way. I again apologize for some of the technical difficulties that we had this morning and also the highly stylized technical language that the Rambam uses to, in this particular chapter, I want to reassure you that we will continue to encounter certain discussions like this, but the majority of Morena Fuchim is much more intelligible to us uh, and more accessible to us. All right, so this is where we will hold it for today. And I wish you all um, a wonderful day. And we're gonna stop it here.